Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly web scene for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Beasts and Angels. It's based upon the lectionary readings for February 21st, 2021, the first Sunday in Lent. I was a little girl in Sunday school when I first learned the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. My teacher, a grandmotherly woman in a hairnet and beige pantyhose, had the Judean wilderness stretched across a flannel graph board in front of my first grade class. At the far left of the fuzzy felt landscape, an innocuous-looking devil, scrawny, red-suited and fork-tailed, stooped in the sand, reaching for a loaf-shaped stone. To his right, a supremely undisturbed Jesus towered over the landscape in a pristine white robe, his finger pointed devastatingly at his tempter. To be fair, my teacher was doing the best she could to ease us very young kids into a story that might have frightened us. I give her credit for that. But here's the problem. What I absorbed from her on that Sunday morning was a superhero version of Jesus that left no room for his humanity. At no point in my childhood or young adulthood did it occur to me that Jesus actually struggled in the wilderness, that he hurt, that he hungered, that he wept, thirsted, wrestled, and suffered. Instead, I assumed that his triumph over evil was a foregone conclusion, a trial that cost him nothing. It has taken me a long time to shed the muscular Jesus of my childhood. To be honest, I sometimes still long for him. I long for his divinity, the certainty of it, the mighty, magical promise of it, to overwhelm his humanity like a bright and reassuring halo. But Lent isn't a season for unshakable superheroes. It's a season for vulnerable creatures whose wilderness journeys are never easy or straightforward. It's a season of shadow, a season when our certainties go into the fire and burn down to ash. It is a season of vulnerability, honesty, humility, and penitence. All of that to say, to read Jesus' wilderness story as a story of facile triumph is to miss the point. Why? Because we need the Jesus of the desert. We need to know that he wrestled with real demons and real dangers during those 40 days of temptation. As alluring as it might be to cling to a divine superhero, we need the Jesus who endured a terrain where the Holy Spirit, Satan, the wild beasts, and the angels resided together. Alone, we'll never survive such a dangerous place. With a companion who knows the way, though, we will. Unlike his counterparts, Matthew and Luke, Mark offers us no colorful details about Jesus' experience in the wilderness. We don't learn what Satan's specific temptations were or how Jesus responded to them. All Mark gives us are a few terse sentences. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts, and angels waited on him. As I reflect on Mark's version of the story, three details stand out to me. First, Jesus didn't choose the wilderness. He didn't schedule a National Geographic expedition or plan a desert marathon to improve his cardiovascular fitness. The Spirit of God drove him, compelled him, forced him into the desolation of a wild and unsafe place. Jesus didn't want to go, and it is very possible he resisted. But the Spirit drove him anyway. Maybe it's strange that I find this detail comforting, but I do. 
Why? Because it rings true to life. Most of the time, we don't choose to enter the wilderness. We don't volunteer for pain, loss, danger, or terror. But the wilderness happens anyway. Whether it comes to us in the guise of a devastating pandemic, a frightening hospital stay, a broken relationship, a hurting child, or a loss of faith, the wilderness appears unbidden and unwelcome at our doorsteps. And sometimes it is God's own spirit who drives us there. Does this mean that God wills bad things to happen to us? That God wants us to suffer? No. Does it mean that God is ready to teach, shape, and redeem us even during the most barren periods of our lives? Yes. In the startling economy of God, even a dangerous desert can become holy. Even our wilderness wanderings can reveal the divine. This is not because God takes pleasure in our pain, but because we live in a chaotic, fragile, and broken world that includes deserts, and because God's modus operandi is to take the things of shadow and death and wring from them resurrection. Second, our wilderness journeys sometimes last a long while. I've never spent 40 days in solitude and silence, much less in a state of physical deprivation and danger, but I can't imagine that Jesus' time in the wilderness passed quickly. The sense I get from Mark's gospel is that Jesus despaired of that grim place filled with wild beasts, that he experienced each day as a battle of mind, spirit, and body. Maybe the hours stretched into years and the nights felt endless. Maybe the landscape itself mocked his weary senses, its unvarying bleakness breaking his heart. For those of us who live in impatient, quick-fix cultures, this aspect of the wilderness is daunting because we tire and despair so quickly. Why, we ask, is this pain not ending? Why are our prayers going unanswered? Where is God? Maybe we need to ask a harder question. Why did Jesus need the wilderness? Why do we? Mark's story begins with an account of Jesus' baptism. When Jesus rose from the waters of the Jordan River, the heavens tore open and God announced Jesus' identity loud and clear. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. But what happened to that certain sense of identity and belonging as Jesus' wilderness wandering stretched into week two, week three, week four? Did it waver? Did the Son of God have to keep reminding himself of who he was? Did he have hours or days or weeks when he forgot? At his baptism, Jesus heard the absolute truth about who he was. That was the easy part. The much harder part came in the desert when he had to face down every vicious, mocking assault on that truth. As the memory of God's voice faded and the isolation of the wilderness played tricks on Jesus' heart and mind, he had to learn that his belovedness would still hold that God's deep and unconditional delight would never depend on external circumstances. If those 40 days of the wilderness was a time of self-creation, a time for Jesus to decide who he was and how he would live out his calling, then here is what the Son of God chose. Deprivation over power, vulnerability over rescue, obscurity over honor. At every instance in which he could have reached for the certain, the extraordinary, and the miraculous, he reached instead for the precarious, the quiet, and the mundane. 
Of course, there is nothing easy about affirming Jesus' choices. Indeed, sometimes I find them appalling. How often I prefer the miraculous intervention, the dramatic rescue, the long-awaited vindication. How often I find myself echoing the demands of the tempter, feed me, deliver me, prove yourself to me. How often I find the restraint of God offensive. Sometimes we, like Jesus, need long stints in the wilderness to learn what it really means to be God's children. Because the unnerving truth is this. We can be loved and uncomfortable at the same time. We can be loved and vulnerable at the same time. In the wilderness, the love that survives is flinty, not soft, salvific, not sentimental. Learning to trust it takes time. A long time. Third, there were angels in the wilderness. Even in the land of shadow and starvation, even in the place where the wild beasts roamed, God's agents of love and care lingered. This too is a startling and comforting truth, one we can recognize if we open our eyes and take a good look around. Even in the grimmest places, God abides. And somehow, without reason or explanation, help comes. Rest comes. Solace comes. Granted, our angels don't always appear in the forms we prefer, but they come. I wondered what Jesus' angels looked like. Did they manifest as winged creatures from heaven, as comforting breezes across the sun-scorched hills, as a trickle of water for his parched throat, as a swirl of constellations on a clear, cloudless night? What do your angels look like? Do you recognize them when they show up? When they minister to you, hold you, brace you, do you hear a new version of God's voice calling you beloved? If yes, then what would it be like to enter into someone else's barren desert right now and become an angel for their journey? As we begin our journey into Lent, may we experience the companionship of the Christ whose vulnerability became his strength. May we enter with courage the deserts we can't choose or avoid, May our long stints amidst the wild beasts teach us who we really are, the precious and beautiful children of God. And when the angels in all their sweet and secret guises whisper the name Beloved into our ears, may we listen and believe them. For books this week, Dan reviews what it's like to be a bird, from flying to nesting, eating to singing, what birds are doing and why, by David Allen Sibley. David Allen Sibley is an American ornithologist, as was his father, an illustrator who has published several important field guides for bird identification. He wrote this book to help readers to learn more about various aspects of birds that are normally thought to be reserved for humans. Indeed, different birds have abilities that easily outstrip our own. These include almost 360-degree vision, the ability to dive at over 200 miles per hour, extra balance centers so that they can even sleep on one leg, and the ability to fly thousands of miles, navigating by the stars alone. After a brief introduction, Sibley features 96 species of his choice to illustrate the breadth of ways that birds live in our world. Each is worth reading about, even if you don't expect ever to see some of them. The New York Times recently asked 22 writers each to suggest a book for incoming President Joe Biden's reading list. Among them was Carla Cornejo Villaviencios, the author of The Undocumented Americans, who had this to say about Sibley's book. 
I focus on a few birds every night before I go to bed. Look at the birds that are hated, forcibly sterilized, shot with rifles because they are big and dark and scavenged to survive. Learn what makes them beautiful and ask why God created them. You represent them too, not just the garden songbirds. That said, even the most admired songbirds have a hard existence. Most do not live more than two years. The mortality rate of young birds is very high, even without human intervention. Sibley's book challenges us to stop and appreciate just this small segment of the created world, which comes at great cost to its inhabitants. For movies this week, Dan reviews Parasite. This dark comedy by director Boong Joon-ho was the unanimous breakout favorite of the year 2019. It premiered at the Cannes Festival, where it won the Palme d'Or as Best Picture, then won four Oscars at the Academy Awards, the first foreign language film to win Best Picture. The film has a 99% rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on over 400 reviews. At a simple level, the movie is a socioeconomic satire about two families. Jun Ho has described it as a reflection on capitalism and class conflict and has stated that the project was deeply personal for him. The Kim family lives in a mold-infested basement apartment and are easy to dislike despite their poverty. The Parks are a ditzy, mega-wealthy family that seem easy to envy. The two families collide when the Kim's son, Ki Woo, agrees to tutor the Park daughter, Da Hai, even though he has zero qualifications to do so. In fact, the Kims are a bunch of scammers who insinuate themselves into the luxurious house and home of the Parks. I don't want to spoil the film, but there is also a third couple that lives in a secret bunker in the park mansion. The discovery of that bunker and the third couple begins a downward spiral into an absurdist, violent nihilism. This film is in Korean with English subtitles. And lastly, for poetry for this first Sunday in Lent, A Prayer for the Past by George MacDonald. All sights and sounds of day and year all groups and forms, each leaf and gem, are thine, O God, nor will I fear to talk to thee of them. Too great thy heart is to despise, whose day girds centuries about. From things which we name small, thine eyes see great things looking out. Therefore, the prayerful song I sing may come to thee in ordered words. Though lowly born, it needs not cling in terror to its cords. I think that nothing made is lost, that not a moon has ever shone, that not a cloud my eyes hath crossed, but to my soul is gone. That all the lost years garnered lie in this thy casket, my dim soul, and thou wilt once the key apply and show the shining hole. But were they dead in me, they live in thee, whose parable is time and worlds and forms, all things that give me thoughts, and this my rhyme. Father, in joy our knees we bow, this earth is not a place of tombs, we are but in the nursery now, they in the upper rooms. For are we not at home in thee, and all this world a visioned show, that knowing what abroad is, we, what home is too, may know. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for February 21st, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.